Welcome to Truth, Lies, and Cover-Ups. I'm Tracy Brown, the fraud-busting body language expert. I've spent the last 20 years reading people, uncovering secrets hidden in plain sight to find the truth in crimes, politics, and billion-dollar business deals. And I want you to be able to tell whose pants are on fire, make better decisions, and build your bottom line as well. Get ready. Let's dive in. It's Tracy, and I am back again with another episode of Truth, Lies, and Cover-Ups. I got super producer Alex with me, who we all know and love. How you doing? Kicking and screaming. I have been dragged into this. Kicking and screaming. Again. I keep trying to say, this is a bad idea. You need somebody better looking than me for this radio show. And <laughs> Tracy does not believe me for some reason. I don't know why. A face for radio. That's all right. Now, now Alex, um, when was the last time you were in New York City? 97 97 did you uh i mean new york city is pretty crazy i think being a cop there would be just off the chain insane don't you i think? can't imagine living in that environment where Mm-mm. you're just constantly in the face of some uh, of 20 other people like the only escape is to go into your own little walk-in closet which you know you pay four thousand dollars a month for well yeah exactly but can you imagine policing all that no, I can't even imagine being in it, much well, less trying to police it. Well, our our guest today, Vic Ferrari, is a retired New York City police officer, and he uh, he's going to recount some of his time on the force. He has these stories that are they're hilarious because and he's just really a character. Um, but he talks about how uh, he was dealing with the mob and. Uh, what they do to guys who snitch on the mob. And mm-hmm. um, he knows how the Chinese government officials get those cars they drive around in. He's going to tell us about that. And then he's going to tell us about the time John Gotti walked in. Well, wait a minute. Go back to the Chinese officials' cars. What, what's the big deal with their cars? Well, they may or may not be lifted from New York City. Be- wait, what? Yeah. Be lifted from New I don't understand. Stolen. Oh, okay. Got it. And mm-hmm. he's got information about that. Oh, yeah. Okay. So, so next time anybody's in China, I don't know if we have any listeners in China. <laughs> Probably not. <laughs> we might be Given censored. that our Mandarin just sucks. <laughs> uh, yeah. So, so he knows how they get all their cars. Huh. Okay. I want to hear about that. So, mm-hmm. and, and you mentioned, what was it? John Gotti walked in the room? Uh, yeah. He had some uh, dealings with John Gotti himself. Yeah. And he, when, he tells he tells us all about the different businesses that the mob is in and how they do everything. I I was just fascinated by it. So as a cop, he must have. Well, I mean, just to have this information, uh, he must have had a lot of firsthand dealings with them. And, oh yeah. I mean, the whole idea with organized crime is that you are organized enough that you know you can you're paying off the right people that you don't get busted. Mm-hmm. So I mean, the idea of that 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 has to go hand in hand with law enforcement and politics in a region uh, is part of the idea. So. I don't know how you get organized crime out of owning police or government officials. I don't know. Uh, he was not owned, but he's going to tell us the whole deal. So I, I think what we need to do is just me and you stop talking. I think we need to talk to Vic. Well, let's go do it. All right. It's Tracy, and I am back again with what I know is going to be another fantastic interview on truth, lies, and cover-ups. I got the one and only Vic Ferrari with me, retired New York City police officer and author of no less than six books that take a humorous behind-the-scenes look at what goes on in... um, 
in police and especially in New York. So uh, I think we're just going to have a great time today. Vic, welcome to the show. Tracy, thank you so much for having me on your show. I really appreciate it. Oh, yeah. So um, let's let's just jump right in. What's the craziest thing that ever happened to you in in uh, in your time on NYPD? Well, what do you want to hear? You want to hear humorous? You want to yeah. hear comedy? You want to hear humorous? Okay, so for my book, NYPD Law and Disorder, the opening chapter is called Embarrassing Moments. Um, every author likes to paint themselves as the hero or has the quick-witted comeback in the you know in, in, at the at the eleventh hour. But you you can do this because you're the author. So I, I wanted to paint. Things that happen to cops, it could be quite embarrassing. So it's the early 90s. My partner and I, it's towards the end of a four to 12, we're circling the precinct like buzzards, waiting to go in to end our tour. And a gypsy cab drives by. A gypsy cab is usually an unmo- is usually a, a bogus cab driven by an illegal immigrant. And they don't have license. They don't have insurance. And they pick up people that are waiting at the bus stop for a dollar. It's like a dollar cab. Well, so we now, had, now uh, let's, let, let's talk about cabs in New York because it's a big deal to get a cab token in New York, isn't it? Or a cab. Oh, a, cab a medallion. Yeah. Yeah, medallion. Well, yeah. Yeah. The yellow cabs, the yellow cabs usually stay in Manhattan and Queens by the airports. You usually don't see yellow cabs. Usually don't venture into places like the Bronx or Brooklyn. Um, they tend to stay in Manhattan where the money is. Uh, that's why these illegal cabs thrive, you know, in the Bronx and Brooklyn and parts of Queens. So we had had a, a slew of these cab robberies. And uh, as one one of these gypsy cabs passed by, I noticed there were three ca- three young men in the backseat of the cab. And one of them was sitting with his kind of with his face over the, the seat with his head next to the driver. I told my partner, I think that guy's getting robbed. They go follow him. Let's see what happens. So as we're following this cab, the cab now starts going through red lights because the guys in the backseat tell the cab driver, go. We finally pull the cab over. My partner and I approach from the back. In the back seat, you got three guys, three young men, and they're passing around a shopping bag like it's a hot potato. Uh-huh. So we walk up to the back of the cab. The bag rips open. There's four kilos of coke in the back seat of the cab. Oh, boy. So we pull the hombres out of the car. We lock them up. I bring them into the station house. And the NYPD, I mean, it's a big police department. But yeah. still, if you walk in there with something like that, it's a big deal. Like everybody's taking pictures. And where did you get this? And I'm walking around with these kilos of Coke like I won the friggin' Stanley Cup. So, <laughs> oh, yeah. I was like, you know, I'm hot shit. So later that night, I had to go down to the district attorney's office and write up the arrest. So what winds up happening is the, the bad guys go down to court. The cocaine goes down to the lab. I'm still in uniform. I go down to the Bronx courthouse to draw up these arrests. The neighborhood around the Bronx courthouse is a lousy neighborhood, especially after when the court court's done for the day. I mean, there's nothing around. There's nothing really to eat. And I was so hungry. And they had opened up a food court across the street from the, from the courthouse. So I go in there. I order some Italian food. I'm like, I'm just sitting there reflecting. I'm in uniform I'm like this is going to be great. I got this great arrest. I'll probably go to the narcotics division. And all of a sudden, my stomach goes. I'm like, oh, God, I got to use the bathroom like now. Oh. Now, I can't use the bathroom across the street in the courthouse because it's like a dungeon with no toilet paper. But I'm saying, oh, great, this new food court, the bathroom's got to be brand new. I go into the bathroom. No one's in there. The thing is antiseptically clean. I go into the stall. I take off my gun belt. I hang the gun belt on the bathroom door, mm-hmm. on the hook. I drop my pants. I'm getting ready for liftoff. And the next thing you know, I hear the front door of the bathroom kick open. And there's like four or five teenagers roughhousing. They're fighting. They're hitting the hand dryers. They're turning on the sinks. And I'm like, 
yeah, I'm a cop. I'm in uniform, but I got my pants down and my ankles. I'm quite vulnerable. I said, you know yeah, what? I yeah. up and get the hell out of here. All of a sudden it gets eerily quiet now in the men's room. And I'm like, did they leave? Did uh-huh. they see a pair of legs and knock it off? The next thing I know, something told me to look up. One of the teenagers went into the next stall, jumped up on top of the toilet. And when I looked up, he's reaching over the bathroom stall to grab my gun belt. Oh, oh shit. So I jump up with my left hand and try to pull up my pants. Uh-huh. With my right hand, I grab him around the neck and I pull him. So when I pulled him, I inadvertently pulled him closer to my gun belt. And now he latches onto my gun belt. Uh-huh. So now it's a hockey fight. I let go of my pants with my left hand. And now I'm just punching him in the head as, as many times as I can. Tell him, let go of that gun belt. Right. Oh my gosh. His friends run into the next stall uh-huh. and now they grab his legs. Now it's a tug of war with a 16 year old over the partition between the stalls. Yeah. And anyone that's ever used a public restroom, you know, those stalls aren't like fortified. Yeah. So what winds up happening is he lets go of the gun belt. It falls down into my stall they pull him over the wall and the wall buckles like it almost comes off the, the, the thing. I hear them running out. I pull up my pants. I put on my gun belt. I run out into the food court and there's no one around. Uh-huh. There's like a 300 pound porter with like one of them floor buffing machines with uh-huh. so many Walkman on. I run up to him. I'm like, hey, Poppy, did you see any kids run out of here? He takes off his earphones, looks up and burps and goes, no. So like I write in the book, what was I supposed to do at this point? Call the police on myself? I would have been a laughing stock of the Bronx had I gone that route. So yeah. I decided to keep that story to myself until 30 years later when I got into writing. Oh. So embarrassing moments happen to cops too. Oh my goodness. That is insane. So, uh, so, so you just let it go. Nothing like they didn't get your gun and they just hassled you. No and... harm, no foul. Yeah. <laughs> Never oh saw them gosh. again. They probably, they had a wild story like, yo, I had this cop's gun. And, and the next thing you know, he gave me a concussion and they uh-huh. pulled me over the wall. I'm, I'm sure they've got their take on it, but no, I never saw them again. It's the Bronx. Oh my gosh. That's great. Uh, okay. <laughs> You wanted a wild story. What else you got, Vic? What else you got? Tell me what you want to hear. You want to hear Hansel and Gretel? Say stop. Okay, I'll tell you the Hansel and Gretel story. So it's the early 90s and going to cop bars with my friends. I'm like 23, 24 years old. Okay, wait, a cop bar. Wait a minute. What's a cop bar? Like, just like, I mean, I can guess, but like, what's your definition? Cops don't like going into bars. Like the NYPD, if you ever get anything in trouble, a bar fight or anything, they, you get suspended almost immediately. They place you on modified assignment and they'll send you off to site the, the NYPD's version of Siberia somewhere, mm-hmm. the court system, or you'll be sitting at the Whitestone Pound in a booth with feral cats attacking your feet when you go for your meal hour. So there's so many different places they'll send you. So cops don't like to get into trouble and they don't want to run into people they arrest after work. So cop cop, cop bars tend usually to be in good neighborhoods where they kind of cater to the police. The food is good. There's no barroom brawls. There's not bar flies hanging around, falling off the thing. They kind of cater to the police. Mm-hmm. Now, Although, is it is it true that, that cops get free donuts or like free food wherever you, that's that's why you end up there? Well, that's a, that, that, that's a whole other kettle of fish. So the NYPD forbids discounted meals, free food, any, any type of discount. Any, does it go on? Yeah, absolutely. But if they catch you, you're going to take a hit. Uh-huh. Okay. All right. Okay. So you go to the cop bar and go to a cop bar and 
there's this the cop from another precinct. In his spare time, he's an amateur magician. So we're talking to girls at the bar. He'll come over and he starts pulling flowers out of his sleeve and plucking gold coins from behind the ears. He's basically cock-blocking everybody with magic. So I turned to my old partner who was working with him at the time and I go, get him out of here. Like, how do you compete with this guy? And he goes, you know, it's funny. He goes, he's the laziest cop in the world. He goes, if he took making balloon animals inside the radio car as serious as his NYPD career, he'd be a one-man crime fighter. He goes, but he's lazy. So a couple of weeks later, they get called out to a six-story basement apartment. So they go into the basement, they go into the basement of this building, and there's two apartments. And usually in those in, in the basements of those buildings, it's a superintendent uh, uh, that, that basically takes care of the furnace and sure. shovels the snow. He lives there for free. So they go to door number one. It's on a midnight. They bang on door number one. Nobody answers. So my old partner, we used to call him cancer because he killed more people than cancer. But that's another story. So he goes, cancer goes to knock on door number two and the magician stops him. Uh-huh. And the magician goes, no, come on. Don't worry about that. We made so much noise down here. If anybody called line were one, they, they would have came out already. And my old partner was going to knock again. And he goes, I'll buy you a cup of coffee. He goes, all right, let's leave. So they leave. What they didn't realize is behind door number two, the super of the building was selling coke out of the apartment. No. Oh. He fell, he fell behind on his payments to his wholesaler. Now, in the drug world, they don't send friendly reminders or cancel your cable. These two Albanian hitmen were trying to get him out of the apartment for days, and they couldn't get him, so they did an old gypsy trick. They got an attractive female. Mm-hmm. They knock on the door. They put the attractive female in front of the peephole. The super sees it. He's all coked up. He's like, yeah. He opens the door. These Albanians rush into the apartment. They're pistol whipping him. Where's the money? Where's the coke? He doesn't have the answers because he's addicted to it. They shoot him in the head. They roll him up in a carpet. They drag him out of the apartment and they throw him in the furnace of the building. Wait, hang on. So that sounds just like something we'd see in the movies, like a mafia movie. (laughs) Now, the mob usually has somebody inside a funeral home. They'll usually know a guy. It's like a mob control business. They're not going to do the furnace because you'll you'll get the bones out eventually. No, the mob usually has somebody. They'll buy a funeral home for that purpose. Really? Oh, yeah. Or guys that don't like scrap metal processes. They'll put a guy in a trunk and run it through the machine. Yeah, no, no. Good God. So anyway, um, while the super is going up like a Puerto Rican fire log in the furnace, the Albanians and the female go back to the apartment and they're ransacking it, looking for drugs and money. That's when my old partner and, and the magician are outside. And they're just about to knock on that door and the bad guys in the apartment come up with a plan. So the two Albanian guys turn to the female and they go, listen, if the cops knock on the door, let them in and just start yelling in Yugoslavian, pretend you don't speak English and just keep pointing to the kitchen and lead them down the hallway. When you get past the threshold of one of these bedrooms, throw yourself on the floor. We'll come in back of them. We'll kill the two cops. We'll throw them in the furnace and we'll get the hell out of here. Ah. Well, they never knocked on the door and they leave. So about a week or two later, the superintendent of the building, he, he had family. Mm-hmm. So, you know, he hasn't been seen. They call the cops. The detectives get involved. The detectives go down there. They see that there was there was a 911 call to the apartments down there. So they bring in my old partner and the magician. They go, you went down there that night, anything out of the ordinary? And they go, no, we knocked on this door, but we were going to knock on that door, but we didn't. But my old partner was a really good cop, turned around. He said, you know, when we were leaving, there was a car parked on a fire hydrant right out front. Mm -hmm. Well, that was the getaway car. So the summons my partner wrote that car 
The car came back to the female. They brought her in. She starts giving up everything, trying to minimize and distance herself from her participation in that. Mm -hmm. They lock her up and through her, they get the two Albanian hitmen. So that's a story from my book, uh, the NYPD's flying circus cops crime and chaos called last night. A magician saved my life because had the magician not been so lazy, they would have knocked on that door. Oh, wow. Now, tell let, let's talk about um, situational awareness as as you, uh, I guess, move through New York City. Uh, there's so much to see. And, you know, having a car parked in front of a, a hydrant, you know, and like having that kind of recollection and that memory. I mean, what else are you looking for as you as you walk around? I mean, even even like with the cab, like, oh, that guy's probably getting robbed. Like what what kind of awareness have you? Well, I mean, and this is this speaks to your avenue of expertise, like body language mm -hmm. um, in New York. We call it the hairy eyeball. So if you go, that fucking guy is giving me the hairy eyeball. That's usually a look. That's a stare, like when someone spots surveillance. You know, here's the thing: like the average person, if you're if the average person is sitting at a light at eleven o'clock at night, and a car rolls up and it's a bunch of gangbangers, what are you mm -hmm. going to do? You're going to glance over once and you're going to look straight ahead. And you're yeah. Like, please light change. Please light change. Please. That light cannot change fast enough. Okay. Mm -hmm. Cops, especially cops in plain clothes, are doing surveillance. They're not really afraid of anything. So what do they do? They make eye contact. And that's how the bad guys a lot of times will figure out who we are because of the hard stare is like we like to call it the hairy eyeball because you'll get it right back and someone you get that oh shit look. I the majority my ten my, my last 10 years, I was a detective in the NYPD's auto crime division. So I I've locked up hundreds of car thieves. And a lot of it was based on body language and a look that I got that encouraged me to run the plate or follow the car to see what would happen next. So, you know, especially with teenagers, they give it up all the time or a lot of times drug addicts, they'll give you that look or the, the way the head moves or same as guys carrying a gun in the street. Um, a bad guy that carries a gun always is touching it, always is tapping it, always is adjusting it. They're always afraid it's going to fall out because nine out of 10 times a bad guy doesn't wear a holster. Oh, wow. Um, so what we would do is when it would start to rain, we would just kind of park where in a high crime area and then people would start running to get from, from not get wet. And you'd start seeing them as they're running, starting to pull up their pants or adjusting themselves. And that oh, was all really? Yeah. Now, now in New York, because they've had they had crime problems and it kind of seems like it goes uh, in in cycles there. Right. And so for a, I don't know how it is now, but for a time, crime was really, really bad. And then they kind of got a handle on it. But then if I and this is just from watching the national news, it seems like there was a time not too long ago where they're like, oh, you can't just the cops can't just stop and talk to someone because because of things like like what you're saying so where does what what's your stance on that and how how has all that played out sure so just give you a little history lesson like i got hired in 1987 okay and new york city you're right it, it goes in cycles so when i first got hired you had ed Koch. he was a good mayor he was a good man but he really he didn't understand crime he treated the cops great but crime really wasn't a priority and New York kind of slid into a dump. And then after him, we had the late great David Dinkins. He just didn't address crime. He ignored it. And that's when New York just totally turned into a cesspool. 
New Yorkers tended to vote Democratic, but desperate times call for desperate measures. And Mm -hmm. here comes Rudy Giuliani, fresh off of knocking the hell out of the mob with the commission case, the windows case. So as a former federal prosecutor, New Yorkers wanted to feel safe. They voted in Rudy. And Rudy basically took the handcuffs off the police. He said, go lock people up. I'll pay the overtime. You know, when I was a rookie cop in the early 80s, if you walked into the station house, like if I was in a sector car driving around the South Bronx and I brought in a guy with a couple of vials of crack, the desk officer would go, what are you out of your mind? We're holding 30 jobs out here. Mm -hmm. Give him a summons, flush that down the toilet, kick him in the ass, get him out of here. Like that was the mindset. They did not want street cops getting involved in quality of life crimes or, or drug arrests. They, they leave that to narcotics. Well, when Rudy came in, it was, you know, all hands on deck, make the arrest. We don't care. What you were talking about is called the stop question and frisk program. Okay. Which after New York, I, I, I kind of see it both ways. It's a slippery slope. So after Giuliani does his two terms, we get Mike Bloomberg. Bloomberg was smart enough to keep the, the same model as Giuliani. But the NYPD and the mayor's office got addicted to statistics. So crime comes down, but the but the cop statistics are lower because crime is down. And then one police plaza says, well, how come you're not stopping as many people? Well, that's because crime is down. Mm-hmm. It, it's almost like if you're sick, God forbid, you have cancer, you go for radiation or chemo treatment. Mm-hmm. And once you're better, you stop going for cancer and radiation. Totally. Treatment. Yeah. The thing with the NYPD is, and it's not the cops, it's one police plaza and it's the supervisors downtown and, and the mayor's office. They get addicted to these statistics and they never know when to take their foot off the gas. Mm-hmm. And that pisses people off because now you got cops running around. There's nobody really to grab anymore. And they still got that go, go, go mindset. They want the statistics. So when, the stop question and frisk program works like this. You can stop somebody in the street just walking around and strike up a conversation. It's called a common law of inquiry. Now, you don't have to stop. If I walk up to you, but hi, miss, do you have a second? And you go, no, I'm really busy. And you keep walking. And there's no other reason for me to stop you. You're free to go. The, the stop question and frisk aspect of it is the question part is time of day, furtive movement. Was there a radio call there? Me stopping you getting off the bus isn't the same as at five o'clock in the afternoon, isn't the same as me seeing two guys in the back of Macy's when the store is closed at two o'clock in the morning in the loading dock area and there's no Mm -hmm. trucks around. Mm -hmm. That's questions. So now it's like, hey, guys, what are you doing back here? Now, then Frisk. Frisk comes into, again, time of day. What's going on? Was it was there 13 911 calls of shots fired and we pull up and I can smell Mm gunpowder? Is the guy standing there in in 15 degree weather sweating? Mm -hmm. You know, um, did he make a furtive movement? Is there a bulge in his clothing? Is he he touching himself? So that's stop, question and frisk. And after you stop, question and possibly frisk somebody, and that's not a search, by the way, that's a slide. We call it a slide and a squeeze or a pat down. Mm-hmm. It's not you're sticking your hand. You know, it, it's one thing to slide your hand over someone's pants to make sure they don't have a gun in there. It's another thing to stick your hands in their pockets and, and look around for crack. You're not supposed to do that. Mm-hmm. Um, and after you do a, a stop question or frisk, we used to fill out a form called a UF-250 and it would have the person's name, provided they want to give it, the location. Um, the reason you stopped them, was there a radio call there? Or was it something out of the ordinary that you had to take action? And then it got filed. But what happened was New Yorkers, um, 
the, the demographics of the city changed. So New York, you know, as a result of Giuliani and his policies, New York became prosperous. The rents went up. Jobs, you know, jobs went through the roof. Tourism was booming. But then what wound up happening is you get all these hipster schmucks that watch too many episodes of Sex in the City and they want this utopia, uh-huh. which it is, but then they don't want to see the police. Mm-hmm. So they start complaining about the stop, question and frisk. And the NYPD and the mayor's office said, yeah, knock that off. We don't want you doing it anymore. Or they diminished it significantly. I really don't know. I'm retired 15 years, but that's from what I could see on TV. And now New York is, is you know, the Wild West again. Mm-hmm. Oh, wow. Huh. Okay. So then uh, what, because I, I got you off your topic about uh car thieves and and what you did around there you got to have some stories around that yeah um i grew up in a neighborhood where stealing a car was a rite of passage i worked in a gas station as a kid and there was always guys coming in with stolen cars trying to sell the parts trying to sell the car so i knew what to look for Mm -hmm. um and and what and what is that what to spot a stolen car yeah yeah oh there's a lot of things so in the good old bad days um, General Motors products, if you remember any type of General Motors product, the steering uh-huh. column had a long neck. When you break that neck with a hammer yep. or a chisel or and there's two pins, you push them and off you go, you start the car. So what bad guys would do is if they broke the column on, on a car, they'd wrap a bandana or a towel over it. On cars, the, the older cars, they would pop out a vent window on the side and put tape there or there would just be a hole in it. Mm-hmm. Another way to spot a stolen car is, you know, you get a flat tire. And it's in your car, it, it'll have that balloon tire, that like that smaller tire. Yeah. It's only supposed to be good for 40 miles. Uh-huh. Well, a bad guy is going to steal it. They're going to drive that thing around for, you know, until that tire blows out. So those tires on a car, you'll see a, a brand new car with banged up license plates because they swap the plates out. Oh, right, right. The age of the driver a lot mm-hmm. of times gives it away or a bunch of teenagers sitting around in a car. People steal cars for different reasons, like the garden variety pains in the asses are the, are the kids mm-hmm. because they want to be cool. It's a rite of passage. They want to go by the high school in a car. They want to take their girlfriend. Then you've got um, drug addicts steal cars because they want to get high in the car. They want to commit other crimes to make money to get high. They just want to crash. You know, they'll park in a parking lot in a park somewhere or someplace out of the way to get a couple hours sleep after they shot up heroin. So those are kind of the pains in the asses ones. They're the easy ones to spot because they hang on to a stolen car longer than they should. Mm-hmm. And the car gets dirty or it gets stickers put on it. You are illegally parked. Like someone will Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Or they'll drive around with parking summons shoved in the well because they don't give a shit. It's not their car. Uh-huh. The professionals are a little more difficult to catch, mm-hmm. but you just got to know what you're looking for. Punch lock. You know what I mean? And we mm-hmm. used informants. And now with technology, with plate readers and stuff, that was coming about just as I was retiring. And you'll drive by a car and you'll see some police cars. They'll have two looks like cameras mounted on the back. And those mm-hmm. are plate readers. So as you drove, as you drive that, that police vehicle, it snaps a photo of your license plate and it runs it. Oh. And depending on how they set the parameters in the computer, it's going to run it to see is the car stolen? Is the registration current? Is the insurance current? 
the the registered owner of that car, do they have a suspended driver's license? Huh. Yeah, I kind of think it's unconstitutional, but you know, and, and you know, I'm coming from law enforcement. I think that's kind of more to big brother. And then they have that information stored. That's how they catch a lot of people nowadays. Like you'll see, like they're looking for a fugitive or something and they know they stole a car because they can track that car is getting is 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 pinging uh-huh. along the way through different police municipalities. Huh. So then uh, do all cops have that? I've never heard of that no. around here. No, because it depends even, on the department. Well, because, you know, I'm in Colorado and they even had trouble with even the red light cameras, um, which I mean, the Constitution is the Constitution, right? That's everywhere. But um, it sounds really like a cousin of that. Yeah, I'm not a fan of, of I, I'm, cops aren't fans of plate readers and um, and right red light cameras. Or, or now they've got speeding speeding cameras now. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. There's something, you know, when you get a ticket in the mail. I thought one of the funniest things in the world was when I was a young cop, I came through the door one day and my dad was waiting for me and he throws a piece of paper at me and he goes, uh-huh. He goes, hey, schmuck. He goes, you, just because you're a cop, you can't be going through red lights and speed. And I go, what are you talking about? And he goes, you've got a ticket in the mail. Because I had still, I had moved out, but my car was still registered at my parents' house. I hadn't oh. switched it yet. And he's laughing. And I look at the paper and I go, that's your car. Because he's Vic Ferrari Sr. The funny <laughs> thing is we have the same date of birth. The only thing is 26 years apart. So really? Go, this is you. Yeah. Yeah. I think my mother did that to save money on cake. So... <laughs> Yeah, but I'm not a fan of Big Brother with that technology. Wow. Okay, so so I so you let's go back to the story because I pulled you out of your story again. So you're like, yeah, I know what to look for stolen cars. So you're in the department, and what happens? As far as oh, you said uh, I I pulled you out of your story. You you were going to tell a story uh, about uh, when when you were in the motor vehicle. Um, in the auto crime division? Yeah. Well, I'm just giving you different different examples mm-hmm. uh, of why people steal cars. Then you have the professionals. They steal for the junkyards, salvage yards, body shops. They steal cars to be exported out of the country. Mm-hmm. They are tagging. They'll steal a car and change the vehicle identification number on a wreck. Mm-hmm. Um, we did, we did, my office dealt with all that, the mafia. I mean, a lot of the organized crime families own the junkyards out in Brooklyn, Queens. My office, actually, we locked up John Gotti's son-in-law. He wound up getting like nine years in prison. As oh, wow. A result of more cases. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I did a case where we had Asians out of Brooklyn. They, they, were, they, were, they were responsible. They were having 30 stolen cars a month shipped to China. Wow. And yeah, yeah. It was an ex-Chinese uh, military intelligence officer. He settled in Brooklyn. He met up with a Jamaican middleman going to the body shops and stuff. Mm-hmm. And... The Jamaican middleman from the Bronx knew different steel teams of crews of guys that would steal cars. And what they would do is the order was for Audi A6s, silver and black, because they were going to government officials in Shanghai. And yeah, oh, it was a big case. You can Google it. I think we took that case down in 2000. Uh And oh, there was so much going on because the NYPD is such a big department. We had Chinese cops on wiretaps listening to Cantonese and Mandarin wiretaps of the Asians that were running it. We had Spanish detectives monitoring what most of our car thieves were black and Spanish. So they were, they were monitoring their phone conversations. And these guys were stealing 30 cars a month. They'd steal the cars. They'd park them in the street or in a parking garage, let them cool down, make sure, make sure they don't have a GPS or a low jack. Mm-hmm. The cars would go out to Brooklyn a couple at a time. They would go into this big warehouse on Metropolitan Avenue. They'd close the warehouse. 
They'd put two stolen car, two stolen Audis per container. Then they would let the air out of the tires so the car would sit lower in the, in the container. Then they'd build a wooden frame above it and drive two cars above it. Oh, wow. Yeah. So they were getting three, four stolen cars per container. Then a trucking company that didn't know what was in the shipping container because it was sealed with a, with a lead thing, it would get trucked down to Newark, New Jersey, where it would be put on a train and railed across the United States to Long Beach, California, and then it was shipped out to Shanghai. Wow. Uh- <laughs> I had no idea. Okay, so... Wait, there's more to the story. So while we're on these wiretaps, we find out that the car thieves are in the murder for hire business. And these guys are like bragging about, you want to wind up like that guy in Connecticut? These guys were into so much stuff. I mean, after we took that case down, we probably solved about 15 homicides. Oh, my gosh. Uh, I'm rarely speechless, Mick, but you got me. <laughs> I I'm guessing no that's idea. a good thing. Yeah, well, uh, so so then was that mafia stuff or is, is mafia no, stuff? No, separate? no, you had it no, it was it was actually a Chinese guy, probably at the behest of the Chinese government. You mm-hmm. had a Jamaican middleman in the Bronx, and he had he knew a bunch of car thieves, and they, they were getting away with this for a while. And a couple of times before we got involved in it, because the New York State Police initiated it with the Westchester County DA's office. They, their surveillance got too close and then they just closed up shop and, and went underground and went somewhere else. And then they would pop up six months, a year later. They were doing it for years until we got involved. And then we finally caught them. Wow. Oh, my God. I don't know how you could. I mean, it's just it's never ending. It's never ending in New York. I mean, did you ever have a good day? On That is a good day. I love doing that. Are you kidding me? That was. Yeah, there's days. You know, it, like, listen, it depends on what you ever see the movie Heat. Uh, De Niro and not Pacino. Lately. And not lately. You know, there's days you come into the office and you're just doing paperwork. If someone in your office has got a really big case going, it's all hands on deck. They, they pull detectives from different different parts of the unit to work on it. And then there's times where you're getting killed with, with you know, garden variety, pain in the ass car thieves. And they're like, Hey Ferrari, go out there and pick off a couple of stolen cars. I'm like, all right, I'll go. I know what I know what to do, and I'll go into a neighborhood and I'll hang mm-hmm. out, and run plates, and I know what to look for, or go to body shops to figure out where the cars are going. Or, uh-huh. You know, I mean, it just depends. But oh, it was always moving. I mean, time went fast. Yeah. Wow. Um. So talk about the mafia a little bit. What was your dealing with them? I mean, like, like how does that work? Like. Do you know they're the mafia? Like when you're talking to them and you like walk down the street and you're like, hey, uh, you know, big daddy mafia guy. I mean, how how does that work? (laughs) Oh, yeah. So, well, no, it's not like big daddy mafia, which is funny. But no. So like my office was in the Bronx. We had the mob. There was mob in my neighborhood. But specifically with the junkyards and stuff, that was Queens and Brooklyn. Mm hmm. But I was involved in that, too. Like with with the larger cases, they would pull the detectives from the Bronx and we would supplement the guys out in Brooklyn. So I'll give you an example. In Queens, where City Field is, the old Shea Stadium, all around that neighborhood um, along Jamaica Bay was junkyards, body shops, salvage yards, glass places, car detailed places. Uh Probably 100 different places. Okay. 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 That was there's different businesses in there. But John Gotti's son-in-law was like the kingfish down mm-hmm. there. Okay. okay. So if you open a business then and you're legit, 
you and your husband want to open up a glass place or, 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 or an engine or a transmission place, mm-hmm. he's going to land on you. He's going to send a couple of guys over and go, listen, this is the deal. You're going to pay us $1,500 a month. You're going to use our gar- garbage guy to pick up the garbage. Um, if let's say you own a junkyard, there's waste oils. You know, you're taking apart, you're dismantling a car, you're going to have antifreeze, transmission sure. fluid. Okay. Mm-hmm. Well, now with the EPA, they mandate that those waste oils are separated, stored in barrels, and someone's going to take them. Sure. He tells you, don't worry about that. Dump the, dump the oil in Jamaica Bay like everybody else. This woman's going to come once a month. You give her $200, and she's going to give you a receipt to a legit company that she took your waste oils, <laughs> which they never come. Uh-huh. There's all sorts of inside scams and shit that goes on like that. So what our office, not my office, the Queen's office, what they did was they rented out commercial space in that neighborhood. They put in a trailer. They got a whole bunch of abandoned cars and they opened up a junkyard and they were waiting for a couple of Gotti's goons to come and tell them how it is. And he showed up. They couldn't believe it. He walked in. John Gotti walked in. Yeah, he just walked in. Hey, do you know who I am? Do you know how this neighborhood works? Like, uh-huh. are you guys out of your mind? I got to come looking for you. No, you come looking for me. And they're like, all right, well, how does it work? And, you know, he started paying. They started, our office started paying him. And the waste oil lady used to give them the receipt for all that stuff. And we were into him for about, I don't know, nine months or a year that he had no idea he was dealing with the NYPD. Uh-huh. So about... We were going to take that case down. I think it was like February and like January, December. Here comes the FBI and they say, hey, we understand you got a case on this guy. And we're like, yeah. And they says, well, we kind of got something on him. Let's pull our, our resources. And um, the powers that be in the NYPD says, we don't need you. We're taking this case down in a month. It's, it's We're just tying up some loose ends. We don't need mm-hmm. you. Mm-hmm. So the FBI leaks a story. To the newspapers, which now all of a sudden Gotti's son-in-law is like, oh, shit, I got a problem because it's in the paper, right? Mm-hmm. So he starts, anybody he suspects that can be talking or might be a loose end, you know what I mean? Like if they get subpoenaed, the grand jury is going to run their mouth. He starts calling people into his business and kind of getting them in line. Mm-hmm. So two guys who that weren't cooperating or anything, he calls them into his, his location. And while they're in his trailer getting a good talking to or smacked around Mm -hmm. he had his guys with heavy equipment pick up their cars and crush them into cubes no so after they came out after they came out of the trail their cars were cubed they were just just hunks of metal oh no yeah don't screw around with these guys um but yeah we, we dealt with them i mean you know they own they're into all sorts of stuff but they own legit businesses Mm-hmm. I mean, that's how they launder their money. That's how they show, yeah. you know, that it's not like the old days when guys walking around with, with a shitload of cash and they don't, they can't spend it. You got to have a business, you know what I mean? To show yeah. a W2 at the end of the year. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, wow. <laughs> Vic, you, <laughs> I just, there's so, I feel like I could talk to you forever, but we can't talk forever, but um, here's what we're going to do. Uh, tell what is your favorite book and tell people the title and where they can get it. My favorite book that I've written is called grand theft auto, the NYPD's auto crime division. It's about my 10 years working in organized crime. It's everything you want to know about the stolen car industry. was afraid to ask. There's stories of interesting car thieves. What happens to your car after it gets stolen, how to protect your car Mm -hmm. and just how the organized crime industry works with, 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 uh, with stolen vehicles. 
Wow. Uh, and there's just a lot that I don't know is that's what I've learned from you today <laughs> is how much I don't know. I've got so many stories. Like I'm looking off to the side. I've gotten so many stories. I got this El Diablo story. A friend of mine stole a horse and carriage for a while. Hang on, hang Central on. Park. Don't, don't reveal it. Cause here's what we're going to do. Here's what we're going to do. Vic. We're going to have you back. Okay. <laughs> okay? We're going to have All you right. back. And then, and then we can, we can, who knows how many times you'll come back until you run out of stories, Vic. You're coming back. Would no, that be okay? I, 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 I'll come back and I'm not running out of stories. <laughs> that sounds good, Vic. How can people get a hold of you if they need to? So all my books are available on Amazon. They're paperbacks. They're $10 or $2.99 ebook download. Just go to Amazon and type in author Vic Ferrari and my mm -hmm. books will pop up. If you want to get in touch with me for an interview or I got a question, you, you can follow me on Twitter or Instagram at VicFerrari50. Love it. All right. Well, I think you're going to get a few new followers and uh, we will have you back. So, Vic, thanks for coming on Truth, Lies and Cover-Ups. Tracy, thank you so much. I had a really good time. Good deal. Good deal. Thanks for joining me. Make sure you subscribe to this podcast, rate and review it. I'll see you next time.